you're listening to History Out Loud, Chat from the Stacks, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries. Presented by Jill Carpenter. Welcome back to History Out Loud listeners for another episode and um, welcome Anne Kirker. Hello. Hello. Anne Kirker is our special guest for this episode and she's um, been a guide on Calderdale Heritage Walks for 20 years. She does talks on local history and a little bit further afield, I think, as well, don't you? Uh, well, I, I have I do do a talk on the Manchester Ship Canal as well. That's about the furthest I go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and she's also a volunteer at the Industrial Museum in Halifax, which is right next to Central Library, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. So today we're going to be talking about a remarkable woman. Uh, I'm not sure many people know an awful lot about her. It's always really good to get a local history talk about a woman because I seem to spend so many podcasts talking about men. And so I'm really glad that we've got this person. She's called Laura Annie Wilson. And Anne Kirker has done research and she does talks on Laura Annie. So I'm really looking forward to finding out more about her. So Anne, when did you first become interested in uh, Laura Annie Wilson? And when did you first find out about her? Um, It was in 2018. Um, The theme for Heritage Open Weekend that year was Extraordinary Women. And um, we just reopened the museum and Don Blomfield, who was president of the Women's Engineering Society, got in touch with the museum and asked whether we'd be prepared to host an exhibition on this woman called Laura Annie Wilson. None of us had heard of her. Um, If they did the research and produced the exhibition themselves. So we said yes. Unfortunately, they didn't get the funding but two or three of us had got really interested in her uh, at the museum. So we decided we'd try and put on an exhibition ourselves. So it was pretty hard work over that summer, but we did get the exhibition mounted in time for opening on Heritage Open Weekend. The reason Dawn and the Women's Engineering Society were choosing Laura Annie was because they were celebrating uh, 100 years of the foundation of the Women's Engineering Society, of which she was a founder member. And they were also wanting to celebrate um, 100 years of women getting the vote, both of which were going to take place in 2019. So um, we said yes, and, and that's how we got to find out about her. And my interest in her has carried on since. Yeah, yeah. She was she was born Laura Annie Buckley, wasn't she? Yes, she was born uh, in a small terrace house at the top of the moor, uh, quite near King Cross. Um, and her father was Charles Buckley. He was a dyer's labourer, so not very well paid at all. Mm. And her mother, Augusta, had been a winder before she was married and while she still had only a couple of children. But uh, she lost three children before Laura Annie was born, but she and her three sisters survived. So she was the eldest of the three surviving girls and they had a brother as well. So um, that's the reason why she had to leave school early when she was 10 and, and go to work as a half-timer in the mill. 
that was to do with um, the Factory Act of 1874, wasn't it? Yes. They were given some time for education. Um, can, you, can you explain what half-timer means? Um, yes, the Act said that children could now work six half days a week from the age of 10, um, but they had to spend the other half day at school. Um, and so they alternated morning and afternoons, one week in school in the morning, the next week factory in the morning, and then they would um, do the other things after that. And we know that Laura Annie earned one and sixpence a week when she started work at the age of 10. Right, yeah. When it says half-timer, really, they're still doing most of the time working, aren't they? Yes. They're not yeah. doing very much education. No, not at all. Just two or three hours, I think. No more than that. That's difficult, isn't it? Because I suppose really the family, they need them to earn the money. They need the children to work. Um, and yet they obviously want them to have an education. And Yes. And um, apparently Laura Annie's school teacher was, you know, really, she was really keen for Laura Annie to stay on at school. Um, and, you know, she didn't want her to leave at 10. And I think that's a sort of very early indication of the of the woman Laura Annie was, you know, the woman she became. Yeah. So the potential was there right yes. from the word go. I think so, yeah. Um she finished her formal education at, at 13. What happened then? Well, um, she said she was always different. We have a lot of quotations from Laura Annie all through her life because she became such a well-known person. So it's quite easy in many ways to find out what she was like because she often looked back on her, her youth. And she said she was always different. And I think basically she was too intelligent to be satisfied with a job that didn't stretch her. Uh, yeah. And that's why she went on to become who she was. And if I could do another quote, she said when, I, when she was working in the mill, I knew I couldn't alter my circumstances at the moment. So the only way to escape from them was to live in a world of my own. And I think I think that's what she did. Um, so she joined the Tried Union movement when she was 15 and she became union secretary, you know, not long after that, I don't think. And I think that she probably always uh, had these socialist leanings and I think she always believed that ordinary people deserved a much fairer world than the world that they were living in in the 1880s and 90s. Yeah. I mean, it's quite amazing, really, that she she was like this from such a very young age, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely born to be something. Yes. So when she was 22, she met and married George Wilson, who himself was a passionate socialist what was their marriage like uh, I think they were an ideal match um he was a trade unionist as well obviously I think he was also um a, a union rep they were both members of the ILP the independent labor party so they obviously met through trade union meetings I assume that's how they met George himself was uh, came from a similar background, I think, but he'd done an apprenticeship and he was a skilled iron turner. And 
he'd been an activist in the great engineering strike in Halifax in the 1890s over the eight hour day question. And he and two friends and presumably many other men as well, lost their jobs. I think basically they were blacklisted. And um, that's when he and his two friends, fellow Turners, uh, set up Smith, Barker and Wilson, lathe makers in the 1890s. They were working in, it was a warehouse, wasn't it? A cellar warehouse and was it near Ovenden? No, not originally. They, oh. um, they set up in the cellar of a warehouse in Raglan Street, I think, which is actually where he and Laura Rani, he was living there and he and Laura Rani moved there after their marriage uh, into a house on Raglan Street. And it was only later, about 1905, I think, that they actually moved to the factory in Club Lane in Ovenden because they were obviously doing well enough they felt that they could get better premises. Yeah. He he did something. I mean, I, I might be wrong, but it sounds quite unusual, really, for the time. He, he made a director of the lathe-making business, didn't he? Yes, she was a director. I don't know when that happened. I don't know whether she became a director as they set it up, so she was like fourth director, or whether it happened sometime later. But... She's certainly uh, described as a director by 1912 when she started to take a much more active role in the business. Yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty progressive, really, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that's that's a measure of the man he was yeah. and, and, the, and the measure of the woman she was. I think they were a really good match. I think that all the things she got up to in the early 1900s she could do that because she'd got his support. He wasn't expecting her to be at home mending his socks, as somebody once said she should be doing. Um, <laughs> you know, But they also had help from his mother. Uh, George's mother, Eliza, actually lived with them um, in their early marriage years. So I think she obviously had a lot of input into bringing up their son, George, and, and later Vega, and allowing Melora Annie to do whatever she did it sounds like they were well matched like you say and, and it was a happy marriage um how how did she get involved in the suffrage movement i think that was probably a natural progression from her union and um ilp politics really she would have been in the same circles and she would have known what was going on but apparently she she was converted, she says later, that she was converted to women's suffrage in 1904 after attending uh, ILP meetings in Huddersfield. I think there was quite a lot going on in Huddersfield uh, to do with women's suffrage. And then, of course, in 1905, she chaired a meeting when Emmeline Pankhurst came to a local ILP meeting in Halifax. And she did have friends you know, the friends probably she may have grown up with and, and who she met at that time, like uh, Mary Taylor, Lavina Salt Saltonstall, Dinah Connolly. They were good friends and they were all, they all thought the same things. The other thing is, is that by in 1906, she actually became secretary of the Women's Labour League, which was the suffrage arm of the ILP when it was set up in Halifax. So... She was just that sort of woman. She got involved with something and she kept putting her hand up. I think I think that, that's the person she was. 
she she would hear say somebody speak and then she'd be thinking well that's a great idea and and I want to get involved she was very very hands-on yes in August 1906 there was a tram driver strike in Halifax wasn't there yes what was that about um yes that in August 1906 the Halifax tram drivers went on strike and that's because there'd been a and a very nasty tram accident on North Bridge in July when a tram got out of control. Uh, two men died and um, the inquest didn't apportion blame to the tram driver at all, but the Halifax Corporation sacked him. This brought out the other tram drivers and tram workers in support. And um, Laura Rani became involved because that's that's what she did. She'd already been involved in other frontline disputes. Apparently, she'd been involved in a pit strike at Hemsworth Colliery a few years earlier. And um, she and her friends, I think, just participated in, in the open air meetings that, that were going on throughout the strike. And uh, I think what becomes very obvious is that apparently suffragettes and she later became suffragette of course just a short while later they were really really good at combining the fight for workers rights with female suffrage and I think this is early evidence that she just got stuck into this and it, it seems as though you know within a very short time she was also stuck into suffrage and then they were on a roll. So I suppose with strikes it impacts the whole family and so she would be able to look at it from the woman of the house's perspective and you know yeah. having to put food on the table and and all yeah that, that's that a good point yes so what sort of things did she do with that was it just demonstrations yes and lots of open air meetings I think it might have been on this strike that they actually had open air meetings on the moor uh, I'm not sure but yes, it all got very, um, very fiery, I think. Yeah. And they were out on strike for quite a while, I think. I suppose the moor is probably a pretty neutral place for everyone to go. Yes. A bit cold, though. Yes. <laughs> Big and cold. Um, she became involved in another strike, didn't she? The Weaver strike in Hebden Bridge. Yes, that was, um, well, the strike itself started in 1906, July 1906, but it became very nasty in January 1907 because at that time the employers had brought in blackleg weavers. Um, By this time, she'd become secretary of the um, Halifax branch of the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, which was the suffrage movement which the Pankhurst were really involved in. And as I said earlier, the suffragettes, the, the women, were just very good at turning any kind of industrial dispute very cleverly into bringing in votes for women as well. Yeah. I think Emmeline Pankhurst, she came and did a talk in Hebden Bridge, didn't she? The, yes. The mill. Um... In George Square. They've still got steps up the side of the mill where she supposedly stood and did the talk, but they're not the same steps. Probably not, <laughs> but there are still steps there. So she had a really good vantage point. Yeah. So yeah, Emmeline gave a very rousing speech there. And Laura Rani, of course, proposed the resolution in support of the speech, which was unanimously um, accepted. 
And then a couple of days later, she and her friends were still up there attending open air meetings. And one in particular got very rowdy and raucous. And um, Laura Rani was arrested along with another suffragette, Jenny Baines from Stockport. And she appeared in Todmorden Magistrates Court two or three days later. She was accused of using inciting language, wasn't she? Yes, inciting people to commit a breach of the peace uh, along with unlawful assembly. Yeah. So, as I said, she appeared in Todmorden Magistrates Court and I suspect she put the courts back up straight away because she <laughs> demanded to be tried by her peers, by which she meant women, um, but of course there weren't any women magistrates, but that's what she wanted. But she did deny using inflammatory language. She said she spoke as loud as she could because she had the cause at heart, um, but she did not say the words that the policeman said she said, which was get justice by fair means or foul. She said, nope, she didn't say that. She conducted her own defence. Yeah, and, and spoke very eloquently. And we've, um, because the Todmorden, well, several newspapers, but particularly the Todmorden and Hebden Bridge local newspapers appear to have reported her speech verbatim. So we've got a really good idea of what she said. Uh, and, and she said a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just going to say that if, any, you know, if anyone wanted to, actually read what she said if they went to the library and looked on microfilm they could they could look at the dates of those newspapers and it would be reported wouldn't it yeah yeah and and she was actually in court February uh, 1907 she she could have escaped with a fine but she refused to pay didn't she she refused to be bound over so she was sentenced to two weeks in Armley jail along with Jenny Baines um, as I said, the another suffragette from Stockport. And um, when she came out, she was greeted as heroine of the evening at a packed meeting at the Cooperative Hall. Um, and she made very light of her experiences in Armley. But in actual fact, when George, her husband, went to see her, he'd been shocked at what she was like. So she made very light of it, but George knew that it had, you know, not been as easy as she was making out. There's a there's a wonderful quote, isn't there, for when she, she got out of jail. Yes. Um, <laughs> several several quotes. Well the one the one that I saw was um it it was quoted um in Henrietta Heald's book Magnificent Women and Their Revolutionary Machines and it was Which is a brilliant book. I went into jail a rebel, but I have come out a regular terror. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> there was another one as well. I was a bit of a rebel before, but I'm 10 times a bigger rebel now. It it really stoked her up, didn't it? That. Mm. So not long after that, in March, she got involved in another demonstration in London. This was on the 20th of March when she and a lot of other women from the West Riding, all over the country, in fact, uh, went to London to attend the March on Parliament for the second reading of the Women's Enfranchisement Bill. 
um, there were lots of speeches, of course, and these actually became physical battles between the women and the police. And uh, 70 women were arrested altogether in, in that march. And 17 of these were from the West Riding, including Laura Annie. And they all chose prison rather than pay the one pound fine. And so they were all sentenced to 14 days in Holloway. Right. It's the same situation, basically, isn't it? Yes. And uh, George, of course, he travelled down to London, didn't he, to, to see her? Apparently so. And um, it sounds as though he persuaded her to um, pay her jail fine. Um, yeah, how did he do that? I can imagine it. I'm not paying it. <laughs> yeah, there isn't very much written about this. And I have to say that I only discovered this relatively recently uh, that this had happened. I think it's because, as I said earlier, he'd been really shocked to see her while she was in Armley. Mm -hmm. And um, apparently he persuaded her that she'd do more good attending the ILP conference, uh, which was taking place in Derby, more or less at the same time. And it sounds as though they actually went straight from London to Derby so she could participate in that. And there was a resolution at that conference in support of the women who were in prison as a result of this march. So she had a, another child, a daughter, in 1910. How did this affect her, her involvement? I'm, I'm guessing that she, you know, she couldn't go on marches with a baby with her. Yes, I'm, I'm sure it must have had some effect, um, at least while Vega was little, although, of course, you know, the mother-in-law was, was still uh, living with them. Mm. But she was still attending and chairing WSPU uh, meetings, both locally and nationally. So, for example, she was um, in Lancaster with um, Herbert Asquith, and that turned fairly unpleasant. She got pulled off a lorry or something like that. Gosh. And she was also at a, a meeting in the Victoria Hall in Halifax when she was um, thrown out, which seemed to be a fairly common occurrence with suffragettes. But when they were thrown out, apparently, you know, they were they were often badly manhandled. Mm. So I wonder if or it's been suggested that uh, she might have been tired of getting you know, manhandled out of meetings because she was the mother of two now with a very young child. Um, and also she may have been put off by the increasing militancy of the WSPU, I think, you know, in the years after um, 1909, 1910, when we don't hear as much about her. And she was getting more involved with social issues as well. And I think that was because uh, she was becoming more involved with Smith, Parker and Wilson. There were things like bombs involved, weren't there? Or... Yes, and arson. We we haven't any really hard evidence. We have to read between the lines, but she certainly seemed to start taking a step back after mm. after Vega was born. Yeah. So in September 1914, things changed radically then, didn't they, with the, the outbreak of First World War? Um, how, how did this affect? suffrage and Laura Annie's involvement in it? Well, I think um, the main suffrage groups got very involved with uh, supporting the war effort, I think, and uh, most of their activities 
were toned down uh, for that. And Laura Rani herself was very busy because, as I've said, she was more involved with Smith, Barker and Wilson. She and George were sole directors after 1912, so she had a business to help run. Then, of course, with the war, Smith, Barker and Wilson were one of the first firms locally to take on women workers. And she she really came into her own then um, because she took on the recruitment and management of the women that they were taking on. They were involved in munitions work, weren't they? Uh, well, not not much making munitions, uh, apparently. They apparently did make some munitions uh, towards the end of the war. But what the Ministry of Munitions wanted firms like Smith, Barker and Wilson to do, lathe makers, they wanted them to carry on making the, the machines that they were making because those machines were needed to make the machines to further the war effort. Right. So, you know, they were a very um, important cog in the wheel to actually maintain production during the war. And so the work that was being done at Smith, Barker and Wilson, and especially by the women, um, was much more highly skilled than repetitive munitions work, which was much more, you know, just like a line. And so Laura Rani taught herself to do all the engineering jobs before passing the work on to other women, because she reckoned if she could do it, so could they. And they did. So they ended up with a, a very highly skilled um, group of women engineers by the end of the war. Yeah. And because of her beliefs and and, and her background, she also thought it was very important to improve the conditions in the factory so she set up a canteen for everyone to eat in uh, she set up a creche so the women who were very important actually had somewhere safe to leave the children they weren't relying on mother-in-laws and she also put in showers and baths oh, so wow. she was improving and hot water so she was improving the conditions in which the workforce worked and this was mentioned in a, a retrospective account uh, in the Halifax newspaper after the war. And the fact that it was mentioned in quite detail uh, just shows how unusual that was in most factories at the time. They were so successful that uh, the Ministry of Munitions got wind of it and they asked George and Laura Rani to actually tour some of the engineering works in the Midlands to tell them how to do it, have a good output, improve their output um, by employing women uh, and bettering their conditions. They've created between them a kind of model, haven't they, that other businesses should follow? Yes. That were advised to follow, which is which is amazing, isn't it? They um, were one of the first to have a an output link bonus system as well. Yes, there's a little snippet in one of the local papers saying that um, they were continuing with that. It was certainly her work with Smith, Barker and Wilson and their tours of the uh, the Midlands factories, which led to her being awarded uh, the MBE in 1917. She was one of the first people, one of the first women to be awarded the MBE. Uh, because it was a newly set up order, the OBE was a newly set up order at the time, and she was always very proud of this. Uh, 
that she'd been in the first tranche. It was her a birthday as well, wasn't it? It was her 40th birthday. I think it was August 1917. Yes, yes. That's nice, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Nice birthday yeah. present. <laughs> There's a little quote from the local paper. It doesn't say which paper. Um, I just found this um, when I was reading around it, but it said, um, the honour will give great satisfaction in Halifax where her disinterested work for women for so many years, her known wide sympathies and her gifts as a speaker have won her general regard and esteem. But there was more good news, wasn't there, um, in the following year when the Representation of the People Act gave nearly six million women the vote, which wasn't all women, was it? It's still not still not the best outcome, but it was slight improvement. Um, I think it was women over 30, uh, as long as they were either owners of property themselves or they were married to owners of property. Mm. Um, so all men that got over 21 got the vote, but women had these caveats. Can, can you tell us a bit about the Restoration of Pre-War Practices Act? When, when was this brought in? I can't remember whether that was 1918 or 1919, but um, this had a great impact on women workers uh, because basically uh, it was an act which prevented women from continuing to work in the areas which they had been asked to work and which they were working in during the First World War. And this was basically to give men returning from the war their jobs back. And so firms would be obliged to replace their women workers with men. They had to sack the women workers. Oh this is quite interesting because uh, Smith, Barker and Wilson refused to do this. And they only did it after they'd been taken to court and fined because they were still employing women workers. And one of the interesting things about this is that the trade unionist who took them to court on behalf of his union, probably the Amalgamated Society of Engineers, Association of Engineers, was actually Mary Taylor's husband, Arthur. Right. And yet in suffrage days, the two couples had been very friendly. They were both on the same side. This was an occasion where Smith, Barker and Wilson took an opposing stand to the rights of the union. Yeah, so Smith, Barker and Wilson lost. They paid a fine and the women had to go. It's, it's, it seems so terribly unfair, doesn't it? It does. That's actually one of the reasons that uh, the Women's Engineering Society was set up in um, 1919, it was in response to the Restoration of Pre-War Practices Act. So what was this and what was its purpose? Well, the purpose was to campaign for women's rights to keep the roles they'd occupied during the war. That was the first purpose, but it was also to enable women to access the training, jobs, and I think acceptance in industry and engineering, which of course they'd never had before the war. They were gaining it and respected for it during the war. And then after the war, they were told to just go back home and look after their husbands. And um, the Engineering Society 
the women, the idea was that women should have equal pay for equal output. It wasn't that the women wanted to undercut men's pay. And I think this is something that's really sort of quite pertinent, you know, to why it was set up. You know, it was just part of a whole bundle of things that women deserved and were entitled to work in industries that men had traditionally worked in and women never had. So she she was a founding member of this. Yes, yes, she was. Yeah. So um she was you know, a founding you, member of lots of things, wasn't she? <laughs> yes, yes. But uh, cer certainly this. She'd already got used to meeting people and other women who were sort of had different backgrounds from the one she had. But this really took off, I think, after the founding of the Women's Engineering Society, of which she was president for three years. Uh, 1926. She was very, very highly thought of in the Women's Engineering Society. She began to expand her horizons, didn't she, after the war? Another association that she became a founding member of, the Electrical Association for Women, which sounds very exciting. <laughs> what was that? Well, this was an offshoot of the Women's Engineering Society, really. Um, it started in 1924, so it actually started before she became president. And um, it was mainly educational and aimed at teaching women how to use electrical power to take the drudgery out of housework. I mean, it had several aims, but that, that was one of them. Because they knew that electricity was the up-and-coming thing. So, yes, yeah, she was one of the founding members of that and she was also a founding member when they set a branch up in Leeds in the later 1920s. As I said they did a lot of education and they ran courses even in girls schools right up to the 1970s at least. Uh, so they were very highly thought of and then in the 1980s I think I think the association was disbanded. In 1935 the Bristol branch of the uh, Electrical Association for Women actually built an all-electric house uh, and that's grade two and you can actually see that online and it's a lovely very typical art deco house uh, in, in Bristol so it's, it's worth having a look at. Yeah I'll see if I can find that online. There's a wonderful quote by Lady Astor who was the first president of the Electrical Association for Women she said that the most difficult thing in a house to deal with was a man and there were limits to what electrical equipment could do about that <laughs> yes yeah that's a good one yeah <laughs> I think I think they had some very feisty women yes in these associations this is when she became involved as a house builder wasn't it yes it was how did she embark on that well there was a housing shortage after the war. I mean, the state of, you know, the conditions of housing all over the country was very poor, but there was certainly a shortage after the war. Um, and Laura Annie made no bones about it. It was a business venture for her. Yeah. Uh, so she wanted to make money, but she also knew she could do it. And I think she saw it as a challenge. She wanted to be able to put in these ideas of, 
um, making electricity more available to people. And so she always planned that the houses she built would be able to make full use of electricity. I think that happened in the uh, estate she built down south, but certainly her early Halifax estates were only supplied with gas, not electricity yeah. at the beginning. Do you know much about her first housing project? Yes, it's it's not the one that most people think it was. Now she's be becoming a bit better known. It was actually the gardens um, off Heath Road near what was the Royal Halifax Infirmary. Okay. Yes, it was on the old Wellhead Estate, and the Wellhead Estate was being broken up in the nineteen twenties. And this is a a very middle class development all semis or detached and it's quite unlike the later estates that she's become most well known for uh, for various reasons um, it sounds as though she sold off some of the plots to other builders and then they built their own design of houses on that um, so it is quite different from the later houses what other projects followed after that well there was laurel crescent which is just off Club Lane, opposite the factory, uh, and Vigal Crescent followed very soon after. So these, she often started one project and then started another project simultaneously. Mm. So Vigal Crescent is also in Ovenden, and that's off Nursery Lane and Ovenden Way. It's, it's a, a little estate of houses which look very similar to the corporation houses which were being built at the same time. But she built, uh, I think it was about 90 houses. I might be wrong about that. She built quite a, a sizable estate there. And you can still see them all. She then um, started work on Prospect Avenue at Pine Est. And then before she'd finished that, her last Halifax, Calderdale estate, was Throstle Mount, which is just off Wallywood Avenue on the way down to London Foot. A Vigal Crescent was named after a daughter. A lot of her housing developments had names which are instantly recognisable, like Laurel, Vigal and Wilson. Wilson Road. She hasn't got anything called Wilson Road up here, but she certainly has down in Englefield Green. And she, she incorporated labour-saving devices, didn't she, and, um, and tried to employ local builders with local materials. Yes, um, apparently all her houses were built of Accrington brick because she said that was the best brick available. They had good slate roofs. She was very keen on employing local builders, as you say. Um, her overriding aim was to build affordable and well-designed labour-saving houses. And she planned them all, so they had an internal bathroom, which was actually off the kitchen, and they had little things like a sort of pantry or somewhere they could put, put their food. And they had two or three bedrooms. Um, so they were well built and, you know, really quite attractive and, and designed as a woman. She thought they'd be easy to, to look after. And they also all had um, gardens. They had some green space. And... When you go and look at them, the, the Halifax estates, most of them face south. Certainly the ones at Pine Nest and Throstle Mount faced south because they could do. So they have lovely views over the um, Norland or Barkisland hillsides from the oh, front. 
Yeah. And plenty of sunshine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how much did they sell these houses for then? I think the the well-known advert says they were going for £400 each. The people she was aiming at were skilled artisans, really. People who'd, a bit like her and George, really, you know, who'd done apprenticeships and who could afford to save a little bit and to take out a mortgage. Hmm. Uh, that's who she was aiming at. So she wasn't aiming it at the least well-off members of the workforce at all. And were these successful ventures then? Yes, because um, they're all still lived in. I'm very interested in housing, so I've hmm. you know, I've looked at a lot of them. But, yeah, they're all still lived in, well looked after, well cared for. You can see them all from Google Earth, which is great because you can really see the layout of the estates on those very well. And um, she was actually uh, headhunted by Egham Urban Council down in Surrey. And so she ended up going down there and building two estates down there. Uh, she built around 350 houses in Halifax. Wow. And as a re result of her building the Halifax estate, she actually became the first female member of the National Federation of House Builders, which was quite something. Although she wasn't the only woman building houses locally. So what other things was she involved in at this time? I imagine she... She had a finger in more pies, basically. Yes, um, I think she did. Um, she'd already been the first secretary of the uh, Halifax National Council of Women, which that is the Halifax branch of the National Council of Women. So she'd been secretary of that in the late 19-teens. Um, but she also was involved in the Venture Club in Halifax, which was a woman's spin-off from Rotary Club in the early 1920s. Mm. And then she became first president of uh, Sir Optimists International Halifax when they amalgamated. And also later on, in 1929, she became president of the Efficiency Club, which was another na national uh, organization it was a networking group for business and professional women so she became involved in that as well um what what's seroptimist club um the seroptimists so far as i understand they're um an organization of business women i think that's how they were set up and i understand that uh, certainly in the beginning i'm not sure if it's so now and halifax seroptimists are still going Hmm. Um, they only had or allowed one member of a certain professional uh, profession. And so, for example, Laura Rani was that member who was a house builder. Very unusual at the time, of course. Yes. And so her presidential badge had Laura Rani Wilson house builder <laughs> on it. And that's a badge that uh, Joanna Laura and his granddaughter still has. Oh, um, so we were nice. able to see that. Yeah. Eventually, um, her and George, they retired from the lathe business and moved down south, um, eventually to Walton-on-Thames. Um, how, how did this affect her work and public profile? 
Well, they bought a mansion, Walton Grove Mansion, I think in the early 1920s, and they, they went down there to live full time after she and George retired from Smith, Barker and Wilson in 1932. Mm. And that's when their son, George, became the managing director. And that meant that they could concentrate full time on Laura Rani's building concerns, the housing business. And that's when she, presumably she completed the two estates she built down there in Walton-on-Thames and Englefield Green. But in terms of her profile, I think she obviously wasn't so well known down there. So she was more of a, a small fish in a big pond, really. Mm. There was a lot of house building going on down there. They were no longer running a large engineering firm, you know, with local people working there. She didn't have the history of a profile in the local papers. And so I think her profile became less, really, uh, although she was still very involved in the Women's Engineering Society. Um, so she still played a part in that, um, particularly until her ill health got in the way. Yeah. What do we know about her health? Well, when she died in 1942, uh, the cause of death on her death certificate was actually long-standing heart disease. Mm. And so I always assumed that, you know, perhaps she had some coronary heart disease or perhaps she had developed some heart failure. And that was the reason why she had to take quite a step back, really, from events in the Women's Engineering Society for a time. She she did so much, really. I can't believe how much she packed into her life. Um, do you have a legacy from her that, that you think is the most profound or stands out to you, your favourite legacy? Um, well, I think it's it's just the fact that she was really inspiring, even now, uh, because she was born and lived a lot of her life at a time when girls like her were expected to work until they got married and had children and then really stay at home if they possibly could, you know, not go out to work. And that still happens, but I think she was one of the ones who was able to break the mould in mm. that. And um, I think she's a really good example of a woman from humble circumstances who became nationally significant not just in one distinct area, but four, and that was suffrage, um, engineering. She got one of the first MBEs that were ever awarded and house building. And I think actually one of her greatest legacies is the fact that just last year, uh, the University of Huddersfield have named one of their refurbished technology buildings after her. They now have the Laura Annie Wilson building, which I think is, you know, is fantastic. Mm. And and lastly, um, she wasn't a woman who was short of words, and so there there are a lot of quotes. So I was I was wondering what your favourite Laura Annie Wilson quotes are. Well, I've got two. I think some of her quotes from when she was going through her suffrage phase were amazing and they're short and pithy mm. um, but I like a, a couple of things she said when she was president of the Women's Engineering Society and, and that come from her presidential speech 
in the 1920s. She said, house building is a form of engineering of the domestic kind. And I think she put that into practice. But she also talks about not putting square pegs in round holes. But how often have we asked whether a woman is working at the job most suited to her? She should be allowed to choose her work if she wishes to do so. So much time is spent in earning one's living that the work should be suitable to the person engaged in it. Um, and I think that's very relevant today, really. You've been listening to History Out Loud, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries. Produced and presented by Jill Carpenter. Join us next time when we'll be chatting with local writer and historian Jill Liddington about her brand new book, As Good As A Marriage, The Anne Lister Diaries, 1836-38. to